As uh, Grace already mentioned, you might have noticed a few changes in our worship space today. And uh, as, we, as we did pray about, uh, the Lord was doing some good work in here. And the fact that we've got volleyball lines drawn on the floor still, and the fact that our usual lighting setup is not here, and there's whatever those things are to prevent accidents, uh, that's all a reminder that the Lord was doing some really good work in this space. And, and I don't say hundreds by way of exaggeration. I say hundreds by way of accurate numbers of young women and men who were affected. So a lot of them, you know, come onto our campus just wanting to gain some volleyball skills. Uh, but the, the ministry and the witness of those who are coaching and leading these events uh, with what's going on in the chapel program that they have during the week, uh, we can be excited about the Lord sowing some seeds and doing his work and can continue to pray uh, that those seeds will bear, bear fruit in time. So if it looks a little different, and maybe it will still look a little bit different during next week and even next Sunday, that can be a reminder uh, for us to pray for what the Lord's doing through these events. Our text for today is Psalm 62. If you want to uh, get a finger in the passage, we'll read it in just a few minutes. I think you probably all know that saying, less is more, maybe. Basically, it usually means something along the lines of, well, do, do one thing really well instead of trying to do a whole bunch of things just tolerably, maybe even with mediocrity. You see this a lot in, in food industry, right? There, you've got a fast food place like Five Guys. They have a very limited menu, like burgers, fries, that's pretty much it. Very, very limited menu. Then there's other, even fast food restaurants. Like, we don't have to talk about, like, Rock Creek or those kind of more sit-down restaurants. Even fast food restaurants like, like McDonald's now. They have a huge menu with all kinds of, you know, salads and all sorts of things. Wraps and... There's different philosophies of what you do at play there, right? Uh, maybe some would say don't overcommit just to one tiny slice of the market, right? Keep, keep that open so you can attract a wider variety of customers. Whereas others are going to say just stick with one thing and do it really well. I think we've seen this play out in a number of different ways, right? Consider how, how quickly a retail giant like Sears went bankrupt, Right? They went from kind of like, yeah, some, yeah, we're taking some measures to we're going to close most of our stores to all the stores in Canada are closed, the end, goodbye, take the sign down. Like that happens so fast. And we can blame, oh, Amazon and online shopping. And yeah, that's a part of it. But yet it seems interesting that some of the small, more niche sellers have managed to sort of weather that storm better than a retail giant like Sears. You know this place is expensive because of how they spell shop, right? In other words, there's something to be said for just setting yourself a boundary and saying, we're sticking to this one thing and that's all we're going to do and we're going to do it really well. Good products, good service. In this case, you know, like men's higher-end clothing. That's all they sell. You can't buy a KitchenAid at Colin O'Brien's man shop. You buy men's clothing there and it's, that's it. The words only and alone, uh, same word in Hebrew, occur frequently in Psalm 62. Actually, they occur more frequently than our English translations generally are going to get across. This is a psalm about allegiance and exclusivity, 
about sticking with one thing, in this case, trusting in God, and sticking with that alone. Not kind of keeping all your options open, not hedging your bets. Keeping narrowly focused on God, on his goodness, on trusting in him as our rock, and only that. Even when it maybe seems challenging or actually unwise to do so. So I would invite you to stand, as, as we typically do, for our sermon passage. Psalm 62. We already heard from a different psalm about uh, the idea of waiting for the Lord and that the Lord will come through in his good time, and that's a major theme of our psalm today. Psalm 62. Also, uh, it's a psalm of David, you might see from the superscription. Psalm 62. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. This is God's word. You may have a seat. Now, we're not very good at silence in our culture. Now, the kids actually did a remarkably good job of, of being quite, quite quiet there. Of course, if there'd been some distraction or we'd gone on a little longer and somebody poked their neighbor, we, we might not have seen so much, so much quiet there. But we're kind of, in general, a culture of noise. How many of us have the TV or, or some other sound on just to have it on because it's too quiet if you don't? Maybe, maybe uh, you just, younger folks in particular, you've always got to have your headphones on when you're just doing menial tasks because the thought of, you know, drying the dishes or mowing the lawn or something or raking the leaves without listening to something is just, you, that makes you anxious and you can't handle it. Um, that's not all bad, right? I like listening to podcasts. It's a, it doesn't take much mental energy to rake leaves. I can learn things or uh, all kinds of good information can come to you that way. And you fill in the time while you're doing menial chores around the yard. I don't think that's actually what David's getting at here. David's culture was actually a pretty quiet culture, a pre-industrial culture. I mean, they had people sounds and animal sounds and weather sounds, but that was it. They didn't have trains and cars and and electronic entertainment on demand 24-7. So David's world was a quieter world than ours. And he still said there was a need there for him to quiet his soul before the Lord. I think when he speaks about silence, he's describing his own state, 
Uh, perhaps externally, that he's not speaking any words actively, but as well internally, within his own soul, uh, that he's reached a state of quieting down his soul before the Lord. I think many of us understand where David's at. When we face difficulties of various kinds or, or something, something challenging, something hard, something painful happens to us, our initial impulse in many cases can be to lash out in, in anger or in grief or to cry out in pain. And those initial responses to something tragic or something very painful or hard, they're often whole body responses, aren't they? You feel that. It sometimes begins with that, that tightening or sinking feeling in your stomach. You're, you feel your heart rate go up. Maybe your hands begin sweating. Uh, you breathe faster. If it's a particularly traumatizing experience, that might uh, get worse and worse. You might have uh, shaking sensations. Um, you know, there, there's, there's the classic, maybe you, you should sit down before hearing this kind of news, right? That's because God created us to be whole people. And when we have these responses, they affect us, mind and soul and body as well. But many of us will also know that on the other side of even really uh, intense emotional and even physical responses to pain or grief, you get to a point where you don't have any more adrenaline to make you do that anymore. You don't have even any more tears to cry, and you reach that state of, well, quiet, period of calm on the other side of that storm. I think maybe this is what David is getting at here. In this psalm, he doesn't go into great detail about his situation, but throughout the psalms, there are many cases where he does talk about his sleepless nights, his drenching his bed with tears, his crying out to the Lord. This is getting into speculation, but I really do wonder if David wrote this in a place on the other side of some of the, that pain and that grief and anguish, when he didn't have any more tears to cry or any more worked up to get about his situation. When he got to the other side of all of that and his only choice was despair or put his trust in God. I mentioned in one of our earlier uh, sermons in this series that you could describe this, this state of getting to that place as resignation. And that's kind of not a good word in, in our cultural understanding, right? We talk about resignation as a bad thing, of, of giving up, of, of being passive, of defeat. But if you were here a couple of years, uh, weeks ago when we talked about that, I also mentioned how words like surrender were once more a lot common in devotional works, literature, devotional life than they are now. Getting to a place where we give up control and the need to have our own way, giving that unreservedly over to the Lord, it's not a bad thing. In fact, that might be the thing. It might be some of the reason we have to go through some of the difficult things we go through is in order to get us to that place where we will have that kind of deep trust in God. It seems David is there. He's gotten to a place of surrendered and quiet trust. He can put his trust in God and not be shaken. Here's where we get the first of our only or alone language. His soul waits in silence for God alone or only. And likewise, God alone or God only is his rock. And we know what that's like. Maybe it like I said, it comes in this place of desperation out of a time of intense grief or pain where 
however it comes, we get to this place where we have to say our hope is in God alone because God is really all that we have left in that season. And that's where David seems to find himself. As usual in these Psalms of David, he mentions he's got enemies. There always seems to be enemies in these David Psalms. David lived a pretty violent life, especially in in his earlier stage of life, on the run from Saul, on the run from all kinds of enemies, living as an outlaw. They're trying to kill him, literally. So in that section about his enemies, though, which kind of is typical, there's this interesting description about a wall or a fence that's in danger of collapse. And the grammar in the Hebrew is a bit difficult. It's, it's not even exactly clear whether it's David that's being compared to the fence or the enemies that are being compared to the fence. Most translations seem to apply the description to, to David that he's being compared to this unstable wall. He's describing himself in that way. Now, in our culture, when we, when we think of walls or fences, we have pretty definite pictures, right? We think of walls, and we think of fences. Typically, I think we, we imagine one of two things. Either the plank fence that's probably in your backyard that you bought pressure-treated lumber at Rona and built, or somebody did at some point, you know, about six feet high, made of boards, you know, separate your yard from your neighbor's yard. Or we think of barbed wire fences in this part of the world that keep cattle and other livestock inside their pastures and off the highway. Of course, in David's culture, wood was, was rather scarce, and so they didn't build plank fences, um, or walls for that matter. They, they built most of what they had out of stone. And you can see these kind of fences if you go to different parts of the, the world Uh, You think of Ireland, right? Have you seen the pictures of Ireland? All the little stone fences crisscrossing the nice green grass all over the place. That's the kind of fence that they made for thousands of years to keep animals in and hopefully to keep, you know, robbers and predators out or at least make things more difficult for them. So a wall or, or a fence in such a state, instability and imminent collapse, might make us think of just disrepair, Neglect, You know, somebody's not been putting those stones back together and keeping the fence in nice shape. You might think of that if you, your fence blows down in the wind or some boards are missing, you need to replace them. But in the ancient world, it wasn't just so much about looking tidy and nice. A fence was, well, or a wall was about security, about keeping the robbers, keeping the predators out, keeping your family and your livestock safe. So it's as much a picture not of just disrepair or neglect but of lack of security. And that's where David finds himself. He's at this place where if it's going to take a hundred knocks to break a hole in that fence, he's weathered 99 and one more is likely to knock that fence down or that wall over. One more and he's done in. Once again, we've got this idea that when all other security that you might normally trust in is removed, you're left with God alone because he's really all you have. We also have another only in this short passage. In contrast to David, who characterizes himself as trusting in God alone, and that God alone is his rock, or only his rock, his enemies, they only want to thrust him down from his high position. So over here, David, trusting in God alone. Over here, the enemies who are bent on destruction alone. This presents us with a bit of a problem, though. David just said at the beginning of this psalm that God alone was his rock, and what? He was not going to be 
shaken. We've all sang the song at camp, have we not? Some of you have. Some of you are like, what's he talking about, anyhow? Uh, another time. Um, but he said he's not going to be shaken, and then he turns right around and says, I'm like a wall that's about one whack from just toppling over. What? What's going on here, David? Let's keep that question in mind, and we'll turn to the next little passage, verses 5 to 7. David turns back from saying he feels like a rickety fence to trusting in God alone. For God alone, he will wait, because God alone is his rock. Now, in the ESV, it's slightly different in verse 5 than compared with verse 1. Verse 1, my soul waits in silence, whereas verse 5 says, oh, my soul, wait in silence. The translators are trying to bring out something in the Hebrew that's kind of difficult to get into English. Um, We'll have a little Hebrew lesson here. So in verse 1, the word for silence, it's in the the form common to nouns. And if we were to be really literal, it's something like, uh, for God alone there is silence to my soul. That's not very good English. It's really bad poetry. In verse 5, however, the word is in the form that you use for verbs. So it might be more like, only for God my soul silences, which also isn't very good English. It brings out the challenge in trying to translate Hebrew poetry because often it's really, really concise, and to put it in anything that sounds like English, you've got to supply words. But the translators are trying to bring out something in the way of, in verse 1, he makes this statement, and then in verse 5 he makes the statement again, but it's in an intensified and more active kind of a form. And so that's why the ESV in verse 5 has David exhorting himself to wait in silence for the Lord. It seems that he's surrounded these feelings of helplessness and weakness and imminent collapse on either side with waiting in silence for God who is his rock. And the second time, he says it more intensively, more actively, uh, as though to remind himself that, no, this is really what what he needs to do. In the next verse, in verse 8, David moves from quietly and maybe subtly encouraging himself to trust in the Lord to encouraging all God's people to trust in the Lord. This shift in perspective from personal to people, there's an important shift in that dominant word, only, or alone. This little section doesn't have the word only, or alone, in that sense. What it does have is all. The logic, I think, runs like this. You should only ever trust in God, but all God's people should trust in God all the time. See how that works? There's this narrowing and yet expanding thing happening here. Right? The object or the focus of trust is very, very narrow. Only trust in God. That should be the only thing that, that gets your trust. Only the Lord. Only the Lord is your rock. But the scope of trust is as wide as possible. All people should trust in the Lord at all times in all circumstances. Now, it's probably a truism to say that trust in God in all circumstances is awfully easy to say, much harder to do. Right? We know that. It's it's easy to think we're trusting in God when everything's just going well, and we can say, oh yeah, trusting in the Lord, times are great. God's got this. 
It's easy to say when life doesn't throw you anything too difficult, but what about the times or circumstances that involve, as, as David says here, pouring out your heart before the Lord? Now, there are alternatives to trusting in God as your rock. David has already presented a contrast between this, right? Only trusting in God, his perspective, and only trying to wreak havoc and destruction, his enemy's perspective. But he introduces two alternatives with another only in verse 9. Those of low estate are only a breath, and those of high estate are a delusion. Now, interestingly enough, most translations, basically everyone I looked at, had this uh, low estate, high estate thing going on, or rich man, poor man, that kind of a contrast. In Hebrew, it's just sons of Adam, sons of man. Because of some parallels elsewhere in the Psalms, most translators go with what they do and what you see in front of you in your copies of the Bible. Whichever translation you go with, it seems that the point he's trying to make is that One of the alternatives to trusting in God might be trusting in in man, in humans. But the point he makes here is clear. You can't put your trust in other human beings, at least not ultimately. Even the greats, the, the wealthy, the powerful, the influential, don't amount to much of anything in God's sight. When considered in light of God's power and God's work in creating the universe and sustaining it and his saving work, The rich, the powerful, the mighty, they don't amount to anything. From God's point of view, there's this image of the balances, right? You you remember your science class, how how a balance scale works? You've got the scale, and you put something here, and you've got those little, the little brass weights, you know, and you you set those on there, and eventually it, it balances out, whatever, you've got 250 grams here, and you know how that works, right? That's the image we've got here. But from God's point of view, you can heap all the wealthy and powerful and influential people, all the CEOs and Fortune 500 companies and all the military of the world, heap it all up on the one side of the scale. And from God's point of view, one breath and it, it, they're nothing. They amount to nothing at all in God's view of the world from his perspective. Nothing. Only a breath. So don't make them your rock if they don't even weigh as much as one breath in God's perspective. Similarly, don't make wealth your rock either. He's clear. Don't put your trust in wealth earned dishonestly, either through robbery or through extortion. Most of us are like, oh, good, good. I'm not, I'm safe then. I haven't robbed anybody. I'm not part of the mafia. Well, there's the, the next part about if riches increase, set not your heart on them. So presumably, if riches increase through honest means, hard work, wise investment, inheritance, any other honest means, don't set your heart on those either. In such circumstances, wealth might be a, a legitimate blessing from God, but don't mistake the gift for the giver. The last verse begins with a sort of Hebrew figure of speech. It's common in the wisdom literature. You make a statement as to how many items are on the list, and then you add one more to it. So in Proverbs 6, we have, there are six things that the Lord hates, even seven that are an abomination to him. Remember, Hebrew 
If you've, ever, if you've seen Hebrew written out, it's, it's a funny-looking script. It's typically written in very blocky-looking letters. They don't have lowercase and uppercase letters. They didn't even have punctuation. So it's not like you could put something, as we do, in italics or in all caps to really make a point. They had to get creative, poetic somewhat. And this is a way that was common to say, this is really important. Pay attention to what follows. So saying, God has spoken once. No, actually two times. It's a way to say, God thinks this is really important. He's speaking. Pay attention. Now, everything within me expected that there would be another only in this last bit. And I'm like, David, you missed your golden opportunity there, man. You you teed that ball up and... I don't know. I so expected that there would be another power only belongs to God and we'd finish off and tie this with a little bow, but it's not there. Not there. But given the trajectory of this psalm so far, even if it's not there in actuality, I I, I think the logic still leads us there. After tearing down the, the rich and powerful that they amount to anything, after saying multiple times that only God is our rock, after saying, don't trust in these other things. Power belongs only to God, not to the enemies, whatever they are, not to the powerful, not to wealth. Only God is powerful. But it's so beautiful the way that he does wrap this all up because power only belongs to God. And he's done this remarkable job of saying... All the the wealth and splendor and power and might of man is is not even a breath in God's sight. So that when he says power belongs to God, we know that that's big power. That's huge, mighty power. But then it's also tempered and balanced with God's unfailing, steadfast love. God's power is ultimate. And yet it's always exercised in the context of his steadfast love covenant saving love friends I don't I don't know what you're facing well, actually that that's not true I do know what some of you are facing and it's there's a lot of hardship there's a lot of challenges I just don't know what each single person individually is facing but I do know enough to understand that living in this community we call Karenport is not some kind of magical force field around our town that prevents bad things from affecting us Um, it's not some magical guarantee that just by having an SOHOSO postal code that bad things don't happen in your life and that everything's just going to turn out fine. We're still vulnerable to the same hardships and, and uncertainties as everybody else is. Now, thankfully, we don't face what some of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world do face, just for naming the name of Jesus. Even so, our culture is becoming less and less friendly to the gospel. We have personal heartaches and sorrows. And so as we close and as we move toward celebrating the Lord's Supper, I want us, I want us to ask ourselves, what's our only today? That's been our key word throughout our whole sermon, but what, what is our only today? Is there, is there a problem in your life, in your soul, on your heart, that's been dominating your thinking and your emotions these days. Something that seems to be the only thing you can think about. Some grief, some loss, some uncertainty. Something that just seems so big that you you can't see around it. 
Right? It's like it's, it's right there and you want to do that, but it just looms so large in your vision. On the other hand, is there actually a solution that's dominating your, your thinking, your emotions? Now that can be a bit harder to spot. But it can be just as preoccupying, maybe even worse, right? You know how this works. If, if I only had this, if God would only do that, if God would only answer this prayer... then the problem would be fixed. By all means, pour out your heart to God, like this psalm says. Pour out your deepest hurts, your deepest concerns. Pour out where and how you need God to show up in your life. By all means. Just don't hold on to that only. God, if you'd only do this, if you'd only do that, don't hold on to that so tightly that you might miss the answer if God should choose to act in a way that's different than what you see and than what you expect. And I don't want to just be all oversimplistic and say, well, focus on God and all these are just going to fade off into the background. At the same time, our, our only hope and our only security against those things toppling us is for us to see him and truly convinced that the Lord alone is our rock, and that to him alone belongs strength. It's not something, it's not something internal to us that we kind of whip up enough faith or enough emotion or, or convince ourselves. Uh, it's something external to us. It's the reality of who God is. When we actually see that and take that on board, that's what prevents us from being toppled by whatever might face us in life. As challenging and as potentially uncomfortable as waiting in silence for God might be, there's, there's really no other option available when it comes right down to it. No one, no thing is going to be there for us when that silence strips away all of their, their false promises. But perhaps in that silence, as we talked about with, with the children earlier, right? when, when you silence the noise around you, you can suddenly hear sounds that you didn't hear before. Like, you realize how noisy those high-pressure lights are, actually. They make quite a buzz. You hear all kinds of things that you wouldn't have heard otherwise. And it's the same when we quiet the noise inside as well, in our souls, in our hearts, in our minds. And we might actually be able to hear what God is saying to us. We might actually be able to hear his 100% reliable promises. I am strong for you. I love you with an everlasting love. I am a rock for you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And so as we come to the celebration of the Lord's Supper at his table, we're reminded of some important truths in those regards, right? How, how strong is God? Some broken crackers and some little, little cups of, of juice might seem an odd thing to remind us of that, but it's, it's not so much about the appearance. It's what this represents and what it means and what it communicates to us. How strong is God? God is strong enough that he could become weak for us, strong enough to make himself vulnerable and even submit to death, strong enough that in doing so, he defeated death and defeated sin, strong enough to do that, strong enough that one day, 
as, as we proclaim to one another, as we partake of this bread and this cup, we proclaim that he's going to come again someday and judge and banish all sin and evil, strong enough that one day he will renew all things. That's what we partake of. That's what we remind ourselves of one to another as we gather around his table. So as we eat and drink together, let's remind ourselves and one another of these important truths. God alone is our rock. The Lord alone is our hope in this life because he's freed us from our sin, the guilt of it, the power of it in this life. The Lord is our only hope and rock after this life as well because he's reconciled us to God. Let's take a moment to pray. And then we'll, afterward, I'll invite our our musicians and those assisting to come forward. Let's pray.